Matthew 18 at verse 15. Jesus continues to teach his disciples and he says to them, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Amen. And may God bless to us this reading of his word. Well, those of you who are regular worshipers here in Hill Street know that In recent months, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, and we come today to a rather challenging passage in which Jesus gives some very practical advice. Uh, And you know, too, that when it comes to interpreting God's Word, one of the key principles is that we always put a text in its context, and we begin to read it, uh, the passage as a whole, rather than just isolating a few verses And you'll remember from what Nigel said last week that in the verses immediately prior to this paragraph, beginning at verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus told the story of the shepherd who left the 99 sheep in order to find the one lost wandering sheep. A man may own 100 sheep. One of them wanders off. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. And then the punchline, in the same way, says Jesus, your father is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Jesus has this great concern for his sheep. He doesn't want anybody to be lost or to wander. And as he continues to teach and speak to his disciples, Jesus has a message for all of us that just as that shepherd made an all-out effort to find the lost wandering sheep, so we within the fellowship of the church are called to be under shepherds who sometimes have to leave aside our own comforts and our own armchairs and to begin to play our part in searching and finding sheep that wander from the fold. When people slip up, When people wander away, we have this task to reclaim them and to restore them because every sheep is precious. God doesn't want to lose any one of them. And it means that if your brother sins against you, you've got a responsibility. Notice how the passage begins. It's a rather surprising, but it's a painful truth that Jesus says that even amongst his disciples in the Christian family, sin may be present. 
And we've got to recognize the presence of sin even within our own fellowships. And Jesus is addressing a very real and a very regularly occurring situation. Brothers and sisters in the church can hurt each other and can offend each other. It's surprising that it happens, given our commitment to Christ and to following in his ways. And it's disappointing when it happens because we don't expect our Christian brothers and sisters to behave in a hurtful or sinful way. But it's a reality of life within the fellowship of the church. And that's why Jesus, in his wisdom and grace, offers us a way to handle the situation. Of all the places to be hurt, you don't expect to find it here. When I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a piece of doggerel which I thought I would share with you. It's not very good poetry, but uh, somebody has tried to express the truth in these ways. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church whose elders always seek and none is proud and all are meek, where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints and criticize, where all are always sweet and kind and to all others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. I hear a few nods or affirmations because we recognize that, don't we? As Christian people, we have a wonderful, perfect Savior. Unfortunately, none of us who follow him are perfect. I was talking to a man recently who isn't a Christian, and I was trying to share the gospel with him, and he said to me, Stafford, I don't have a problem with Christianity. It's just that from my perspective, Christians aren't Christian enough. So what do you do when you come side by side with an imperfect Christian who leaves you feeling hurt and offended? Jesus says, I want you to think of the needs of that person who offended you. That's really the surprising bit, isn't it? Maybe you say to God, but Lord, I've been hurt. I've been offended. I've been injured here. I need some kind of satisfaction. I need an apology. And Jesus says, I want you to think about the needs of the person who offended you. What's the best thing for them? Whatever's going on in their lives needs some attention. Maybe they're beginning to wander. And you have to try and help to bring them back. Don't think about vengeance. Don't think about getting an apology. Don't think about putting people in their box. Don't think about humiliating them. Think about what's best for them. How can they be reclaimed and restored and helped? Uh, Jesus is talking here about private, personal sins. Uh, you know that if a sin has been public, it just wouldn't make sense to go to a person in private to deal with the matter because it would already be widely known. But if there has been this personal offense caused, then Jesus says, don't talk to other people about it. Don't complain or announce to everybody else in the church how offended you are and how hurt you have been. Don't ask your fellowship group to pray about it. 
<coughs> don't shame anyone. Simply talk to the person humbly, quietly, and privately. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but that can be a terribly uncomfortable thing to do. Because we're, all, we're Ulster people, aren't we? The normal way we try to deal with issues is through denial. We pretend nothing has happened. Or we just stop talking to the person who has offended us and we blank them and we shut them out of our lives. We may not say anything, but inwardly we're resentful and angry. And to deal with it in the way Jesus describes here is a very unnatural and difficult thing for us to do. But if the peace and the purity of the Christian family is going to be preserved, if we're going to help our friend, then we need to follow the way of Christ. Here's what William Hendrickson says about this passage. Jesus means that the offended brother should, in the spirit of brotherly love, go and show the sinner his faults. And this is not certainly, <clears throat> most of all, for the purpose of receiving satisfaction for a personal grievance, but rather in the interest of the offender, that he may repent and may seek and find forgiveness. And that's the attitude Jesus wants us to have in our hearts, that your brother or sister would not become hardened in their sin, that they would not drift away from the light and truth of the gospel, that your goal is to win your brother and sister over. You want to be reconciled to them. You want your fellowship to be restored with them. That's the successful outcome you're seeking. But immediately Jesus goes on and says, what if, you're, what if the person who offends you doesn't react well? What if they get really angry and really annoyed? And Jesus foresees a, a situation where you may approach someone, but the person won't see their sin. They won't see or understand that they've done anything wrong uh, and that reconciliation just doesn't happen. And that's why he goes on to describe a second and a third step. He says, you seek the counsel and you seek the help of the leaders in the church. It's a rather amazing but true thing, isn't it? That when it comes to your sin and when it comes to the sin of other people, I have almost perfect 2020 vision. I can see your sin so clearly. But when it comes to my own sin, I'm virtually blind. You know what? I'm very good at taking the speck or the chip of wood out of other people's eyes. And I can so easily miss the fact that there's a whole plank of wood sticking out of my own eye. And Jesus says we're all like that. So whenever you come to me and you say, Stafford, here's the way you hurt me and you offended me, I, I can be so surprised and I can be so shocked because I never thought it was sinful or wrong or hurtful. I didn't intend to hurt anyone. In fact, I may think that you're totally out of order in raising the matter with me. But before I react and before I get mad, I need to listen to you. Because I may not have seen it. I may not have understood it. I need your perspective to help me see my weaknesses and my sins. And that's one of the reasons why we need each other in the church so that we can be kept on track and especially so that we can deal with our feelings and our sinfulness. The two witnesses that Jesus talks about here in verse 16 uh, are not just people who are going to be on your side <clears throat> and you're going, they're going to go along with you as you clobber the person who has done whatever you're offended about. Those two witnesses may in fact say, having heard your concern 
And having heard your brother's side of the story, they may say to you, you know, we think you've made a mountain out of a molehill here. We think you've misunderstood what has happened. We want to give you a reality check that that person's got a point and you totally misunderstood what they were doing or saying. And these brothers or sisters, these witnesses, are there to confirm the facts of the matter, to help us see things clearly, to give us another angle and another perspective that we might have missed. And in the presence of the witnesses in this process, it's to enable us to bring about reconciliation and restoration. So ask yourself, is my case, is my concern so serious that I'm willing to involve two people of sound judgment to go with me? Or am I making more of this than it really deserves? If the sin warrants it, and if you're not reconciled to your brother or sister in a personal conversation, then Jesus says, look for some outside help. That will give you the perspective, that will give you the wisdom that you need, and if that process fails, then it may eventually be a matter for formal church discipline, and that will involve the elders who are entrusted with the spiritual oversight of the congregation. That's what verses 17 and 18 are talking about. And that really brings me to this second point. The first point is you recognize the reality and the presence of sin, yes, even in the church family, but we recognize, too, the potency, the potency and the power of sin to destroy us. What Jesus means is that if someone has sinned and they insist that they're not going to listen to anyone, that they're going to persist in what they're doing without acknowledging their sin or willing to repent, it doesn't mean we hate them. But we know that if their sin goes unchecked, it puts them in a very dangerous and perilous position. You remember what Nigel was saying last week about that page in Journey Into Life, the pamphlet that talks about sin, sin spoils, sin separates, and sin spreads. And that quote from John Owen, be, John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I must say I like Tim Keller's definition of repentance. He says repentance is killing the things that are killing you without killing yourself. And true Christians know that and they're always ready to do that. And that's why unrepentant sinners have to be pursued. They have to be persuaded. They have to be brought back home again because their sin may kill them. And if they don't deal with it, it leaves them exposed to God's judgment. And they need to be brought back to Christ and to grasp again what it means to be forgiven and pardoned. Last year, we had a lot of talk about Martin Luther and about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And you remember the story now well of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And the very first of those 95 theses was this. All of life is repentance. That's what Luther wanted to get across. That if we live under the gospel, then as Christian believers, we never get it entirely right. But all of our life is one of repentance. And as Christian brothers and sisters, we're committed to the gospel. We know we're not perfect. Every day we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And if someone says they don't need to repent, they don't need to change, then they're indicating that they've never really understood the gospel. 
So the whole of this Matthew 18 passage is about us being a family together, about living out the gospel together as a family of faith. How do we conduct ourselves? What do we do when sin occurs? And sometimes when we don't see our sin and when we think we're okay, we need others to help us and to advise us. Verse 18 about binding and loosing requires a whole sermon on its own. I can't begin to tell you how much ink has been spilt over that. Uh, Suffice to say the passage is speaking about the authority of elders in the church to bind and loose, to admit people to the church fellowship and to exclude people from the church fellowship. It simply means that Christ has given authority to elders to be shepherds of the flock and to hold accountable the members of the flock to live as Christ has called us to live. And when we join the church, we make ourselves accountable to the leadership. We pledge that we'll live in a Christ-honoring way. And the church has then that responsibility to encourage those who profess faith in Christ and who are members of the family to live consistently with their profession. And the reason why we do that is because sin is so potent. Sin can be so destructive And if it's left unattended and untreated, it's like a malignant cancer. It can grow and grow and grow, and it can cause untold pain and misery. And that's why at a personal level, in your own life, and at a corporate level in the church, we can never turn a blind eye to sin. Jesus, you remember his illustration? He says sin is like a little drop of yeast, a little spot of yeast in a lump of dough. Even though it's very small, it affects and it transforms the whole lump. And if sin is allowed to take root in a Christian family, it can spread and spread and many people can be hurt and the name of Christ can be defamed and that's why action is needed. But the code of our Presbyterian Church in Ireland is very good and very wise because it emphasizes the fact that when we as a church engage in any kind of disciplinary process, It's never to exclude people. It's never to punish people. In fact, it's the very opposite. Any disciplinary process is intended to restore people, to help them get back on track again, to win them over, to bring them back into the fold. Because that one wandering sheep is precious to the Lord. And we don't want to let them go. And we don't want to let them make mistakes and to suffer the destructive effects of sin in their lives. Because we know that sin can destroy people, can destroy families, it can destroy church fellowships, it can destroy individuals forever. Here's my final thought. We recognize the presence of sin, we recognize the power and potency of sin, But the wonderful truth is we recognize the presence and the power of the Savior. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. It's in the church and in the Christian family that we know and experience the salvation of Christ. The power of Christ, his blood are so potent and so effective that we, when we do confess and repent, the power and guilt of sin are finished forever. That's why we can sing and pray, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. 
So this section about recognizing the presence of sin and the destructive power of sin is what Jesus has been talking about all the way through. You remember what we looked at last week? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If there's sin in your life, be radical in the way in which you deal with it. And when it comes to our brothers or sisters straying and sinning, we pursue them so that they're brought back again, so that they know the pardon and the forgiveness of, sin, of Christ. And when we do that, we're assured of Christ's presence with us. That's what verses 19 and 20 mean. The shepherd says, I'm going to be with you. If two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. That last verse is quoted very often, isn't it? Uh, often on a bad wintry night when only two people show up for the prayer meeting, and we begin to pray where two or three come together in my name. And, and that's true. But when you put this verse in its context... It has an entirely different meaning, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, in those hard and difficult and painful situations where we're trying to recover those who are straying, when we're called to do the hard things and address the difficult issues, he says then, I'm going to be with you. You know what it's like in our normal human families some of you may know what it's like to have a, a difficult, even a disobedient child. And as a parent, you know, you need to be proactive and you need to enforce some kind of discipline for the sake and the long-term long well-being of the child. Sometimes it's easier for us to deny that there's a problem. Sometimes it's easy for us to pretend nothing's wrong. But we know in our hearts that if children are not set boundaries and parameters, it can be disastrous for them in later life. And discipline is hard, but if our children are going to be happy and fulfilled in their lives, then somebody needs to set some boundaries for them. And when they begin to wander, we need to warn them. We need to call them back. And it's the same in the church, says Jesus. Addressing hurts and offenses is not easy. But he says, whenever you try to do that, I'm going to be with you. In that moment when you need the grace and the compassion and the help of Christ, I'm going to be with you. Of course, it's easier to ignore it, isn't it? So easy to be offended and to be hurt and even to become so defensive when our sin is pointed out to us. So easy for elders sitting in a session meeting to think it's not their job to address difficult issues. So easy for ministers and so painful for them to look in another direction. But that's why we all need the presence and the power and the grace of Christ. If we are going to be shepherds to the flock, if we're going to see the wandering sheep restored and brought back in, then Jesus says, here's how you do it. Folks, <clears throat> this is difficult, and this is hard, and the only reason why we have to say this is because we know that Satan is real. And he has a mission and a strategy to destroy and to disrupt the church more than anything else. When a church like Hill Street is vibrant and moving forward, you can be sure 
that Satan's alive and well. And like St. Patrick with the snakes, we need to kick him out. And we need to love each other and we need to be committed to each other. Every church where I've been involved as pastor, we've always had these issues. And we need to address them in the spirit in which Christ tells us here. The way Jesus speaks to us in this passage, to help each other, to love each other, to be humble with each other, and in all that, to seek his grace and his presence with us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray today that you'll help us understand this passage from your word. We ask, gracious Lord, that you will help us to be the loving people you've called us to be and help us to be as the Savior was himself who sought the strain and who called them back and who showed grace and pardon <clears throat> and forgiveness. So, Lord, help us in our lives, in our families, and in our church to honor you in this way. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. <clears throat>